Hello and welcome to the Friday, July 24th, 2020 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, who was that masked governor? What she said? And Iowa 4th District. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, step up, mask up. It's taken a while, but the Iowa Department of Public Health has launched a campaign to get Iowans to wear face coverings to help slow the spread of COVID-19. Don't worry, it's not a mandate, it's just encouragement. Uh, COVID-19 is far from over, Governor Kim Reynolds said in announcing the Step Up Mask Up campaign. Thank you, Governor Obvious. Um, So Todd, after four months of advising and prodding the governor on this issue, um, are you taking a victory lap? Well, I'm, I'm encouraged to be encouraged, I guess. It's you know, nice that the governor and, and her administration are, are, you know, telling us about the benefits of wearing masks, even though, you know, that the benefits were clear quite a while ago. <laughs> and a lot of people were saying that we should do more to make sure people wear masks. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's interesting to trace some of these things. I mean, we've got the president saying now that masks are patriotic. So I guess that is, gives the all clear to the, to the Reynolds administration to, say wearing masks is a, is a, a good idea, a better idea, I guess, than what they thought weeks ago. So it's, uh, you know, step up, mask up, I guess is nice. We had a, a reader sent in a letter to the editor we're running this weekend. His slogan, suggested slogan was mask it or casket, which would have been <laughs> a little more, a little more uh, in your face, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> wow. Uh, the grim uh, slogan, I guess. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I'm sure the governor wanted to admit it, but do you think her, you know, given the timing of this, um, as you mentioned, perhaps it has something to do with the, the president's patriotic fervor now, um, but do you think it has anything to do with the actions taken in Iowa City and Johnson County um, that she's sort of responding in her own way to those actions? Well, I think, I think they definitely are, have probably nudged her in, in this direction. I mean, you, when you have major cities considering uh, requiring, you know, requiring mask usage uh, in defiance of what she says is there, you know, that they don't have the legal authority. Uh, you know, I think maybe she's decided that they're, that, you know, at the very least she can do this, statewide encouragement effort and maybe that will you know stop cities from from doing the mask mandates which could spark some sort of legal action i guess if a local resident decides they want to sue over it uh but i i don't i don't know that that's going to be effective i think if we continue to see caseloads rise as schools reopen college towns see students come back i think there's going to be pressure on local officials to to go further than just encourage and whether that sets up a legal challenge, I don't know, but uh, I'm not sure that the governor's the, the step up mask up is is going to be enough in the face of in the face of the threat. Mm-hmm. 
Reynolds and Attorney General Tom Miller have said that local governments don't have the authority to require masks, and, and I haven't heard that the National Guard has been deployed to the People's Republic of Johnson County, um, at least not yet. Um, and I mean, that's probably a, a different situation there um, than in Sioux City, Brett, where the mayor called the mask mandate, a, I think he said it was a good idea, but no, it's a non-starter because of uh, the attorney general's legal ad advice. Is that the end of the issue there? Or, or are people still pushing for some sort of a soft mandate? Yeah, that remains to be seen. How um, um, this came up at the last two city council meetings, the last two Mondays. Um, at first, it, it wasn't an agenda item, but at, it was at the end of the two meetings ago. Um, one councilman brought it up to the mayor and said, "You know, we should the, you know, we should start, we should look into this. At least look into this." And then the most recent Monday, um, it, it came because at the end of the meetings. People can come forward from the public and talk about, you know, whatever issue they want to. And a woman strongly, strongly encouraged um, the city council to take action and to require masks. She mentioned all these the health reasons that she saw that of the necessity of this and, and that, it you know, was ha it's been happening in other places throughout the nation. And she strongly encouraged that. And then I uh, spoke to the mayor after the meeting and that that's when he said the non-starter comment. And it, it was you know, it, and Bob Scott, the mayor here, he absolutely, you know, he sees merit in it, you know, the, the health health necessity of it. But it was, again, it was the, what the governor had said that was his re reason he said it was a non-starter. Although it was curious because then it was the very next day that Iowa City announced it. So I don't know if that, and that emboldens him to maybe come back to it. So, so on Monday he said non-starter, then Tuesday, I believe it was Tuesday, right, that Iowa City took their step um so that maybe that you know would give him fodder to actually come back to it and say okay well if and it's, you know and it's, as he looks at the the landscape if you know reynolds doesn't do anything so to speak to you know to to step in um there then maybe that opens the door and i will say uh, something todd said i think was um i just thought of this that um about what colleges coming back and, and what might happen with colleges. Um, they There's three colleges in Sioux City. And as of yesterday, the third one came out and they're all gonna require masks for students on campus. So again, when you have a movement that, you know, where you have some major institutions in the city that are taking that kind of step, you can see where the mayor maybe w w might revisit it. Well, it's interesting in Minnesota, the governor, you know, has issued a mask mandate that I think starts this weekend or Monday, I, I forget. Um, and, and there was speculation there that uh, he was doing it sort of at the request of a lot of business groups because individual businesses didn't want to require masks, but now they can blame the governor. Hey, it's out of my hands. The governor has ordered this. You have to wear a mask. And, and I, I'm wondering, you know, if we might see that here, if we have all these colleges who are requiring masks and I mean, we have Walmart and Target and mm. the Costco and, and, you know, saying you Menards apparently turns away people who don't have masks. Um, you know, at some point, you know, you, you get to a critical mass and, and then, the, uh, you know, if the Association for Business and Industry or the, the chamber uh, asks the governor for a mask mandate, uh, she would be doing them a favor, I guess. Um, Amy, uh, are there any mask mandate 
in uh, Waterloo, Cedar Falls area or? Yeah, I'm, I'm echoing Brett, basically. Our our mayor, our city council and our, our health officials and, and sheriff kind of all came to the same conclusion that it wasn't legal. Now, if they're watching now that Iowa City has sort of gone through anyway, they might see maybe if it's not going to be challenged there and if we have a critical mass like you're talking about in businesses and schools and things then that might be a real possibility. I actually uh, just finished up a story for this Sunday on a Facebook group that sprouted up and now has 1,200 members just in the Waterloo Cedar Falls area. And all they have is basically a Google Doc. This is also a thing in uh, Cedar Rapids and Iowa City because um, the woman who runs it told me she stole that idea from their Facebook group. They put together a list and it's a publicly available and editable Google Doc that anybody can edit talking about which businesses and restaurants and salons have mask mandates or recommendations, whether their employees wear masks, whether customers are socially distant, other sorts of hand sanitizer things and that. So there's really a big, I think, push in at least the metros to really sort of find some way to get this information out there if there's no mandate. Whereas a mandate would make it really easy across the board and you wouldn't have sort of businesses being picked on, you know, for either not having a policy or, or failing to get something in place in time. So mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's a really interesting and evolving question. Well, given how litigious we are today, it's hard to imagine that somebody won't challenge this in someplace like Iowa city or, or, um, you know, wherever there's a mask mandate, but Todd, you know, from the perspective of the, the governor and the attorney general challenging Iowa city, this seems different than a minimum wage, where I think there could be a logical argument that you don't want a patchwork of minimum wage rates across the state. Here, it's a health issue. How do you argue against a community that's taking some sort of action that is pretty obviously in the best interest of uh, public health? Yeah, I, I think, you know, best case scenario, the governor would issue a, a statewide mask order. And I think, you know, that would as you say, that would certainly send a clear message for businesses and other institutions that, hey, this is this is what we're doing. This is what you need to do. And if your customers don't like it, you can say, hey, talk to Governor Reynolds. She's the one that put this in right. place. At the very least, she should allow, she should give localities the power to do this because, I mean, you know, okay, so you, you think that maybe the governor thinks that it makes no sense to require masks in tiny towns out in Northwest Iowa somewhere, but in metropolitan areas where cases are rising, it makes sense to give public health officials on the ground there who know the local situation tools to use to stop the spread of the virus in those communities. And I think, I mean, that's exactly why we elect local leaders and we appoint local leaders to health boards is to protect public health and to do the things that need to be done. And the idea that they don't have the authority to do that needs to be corrected. And I think Iowa City is kind of firing the first shot. And I, I just really, I I just really think the administration needs to, needs to basically, you know, put together an order and say, local governments have the power to, to issue mask orders. And, And I just, it just makes, it just makes sense, especially with the insistence that we have to reopen as much as we have, and, and more so as, as schools and colleges and, and people talk about football and all these things this fall. I, I just think you need to give local people the ability to do this. Well, her emergency proclamation, I think, is set to expire tomorrow. So yeah. I don't know if she'll be speaking to that today. Um, 
you know, we'll check back at 4.59 this afternoon, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Amy, it also seems that this is different now, as Todd mentioned earlier, that uh, the president is calling it patriotic to wear a mask. Um, so how can it be bad? Or, or is Trump just saying this so progressives won't follow his advice and they'll go maskless? <laughs> Of, of course, um, in, in saying that, he also said that he's never resisted wearing a mask. You know, we've always been at war with Oceana. So I think the point is that, you know, he realizes that the numbers are bad. And it's really weighing, you know, his desire to sort of get a reaction from people that would, you know, especially liberal people that have been wearing masks. You know, he he sees this like we all see this. It sort of became a political divide. And of course, he wanted to. Trump being Trump sort of exacerbate that. Well, now the coronavirus is threatening his reelection. You know, if the cases mm -hmm. keep rising, if the deaths keep rising, that's a really bad look. And that's a huge issue for people on the ground. So he's he's really seeing that, I think. And especially in Iowa, we see that, you know, cases have not gone down. We're we're coming back up and, and sort of plateauing up here. And something needs to, you know, happen in states that Trump carried particularly that are really, really heavy loads uh, cases of coronavirus. So so I think he just made a calculation, you know, that he needs to definitely focus on this now. So wear a mask at least until you cast your ballot this fall. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's got MAGA masks in the store. Like he can capitalize on this and use them. For well, yeah, political. yeah. It's, there's money to be made. So. Absolutely. All right. Moving along here. Like they said, the glow on Ashley Hinson's uh, second quarter money haul faded quickly when the New York Times reported this week that the first district Republican challengers campaign had lifted passages from a variety of sources, including the Times and Representative Abby Finkenauer's website. Hinson blamed a Virginia consulting firm working for her campaign and has severed ties with the firm and apologized for the plagiarism. Uh, Amy, how badly damaged is Hinson by this? Uh, I mean, it was just a temporary setback for Joe Biden when he was accused of plagiarism. And and that was back when, when people maybe cared more about plagiarism. What was that, 88 that that happened? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Got, I don't think that it is an issue among supporters or even really detractors. I think it can be a talking point for whichever side that you're on. But ultimately, I don't think any voter is going to say, well, I supported her up until I realized that she had lifted, uh, you know, three passages from an essay in the New York Times. That's that's not going to happen. Um, you know, as much as us journalism, you know, people uh, obviously are against plagiarism. You know, this could cost us our job if we plagiarize. So, so this is a very big issue for us. We're kind of an outlier, us and the academics. I don't think uh, a normal voter gives a hoot. You don't think that people look at this and say that even if they don't understand foreign policy or the ins and outs of, uh, you know, economics, everybody knows it's wrong to copy someone else's paper, to copy off of somebody else. Yes. Um, right. Right. You don't, you don't think that will change voters' minds about Ashley? I, I do not think that that will change voters' minds. If it has changed your mind, please email me. And tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I would be excited. Todd, is the news here that voters are going to, are learning that uh, candidates don't write their own press releases and policy papers? That uh, 
is this sort of the equivalent of those old pace salsa ads, you know, where, you know, some consultant in Virginia is writing your policy. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's, yeah, to some extent. I mean, I think, you know, there are some effects with this. I mean, one is that I, you know, it makes it a little bit tougher for her to sort of, uh, you to you know to sort of brag up her journalism credentials mm-hmm. as she runs. I mean, she refers to herself as an award-winning journalist in in lots of different venues. And I think you know now when she brings up the fact she's a journalist, that might sort of also bring up the fact that she had this plagiarism incident with the, her consulting firm FP One. I think is what it is. It's in Virginia, and they they uh, they brag that what is it uh, that they. Uh, they win the tough fights. Well, I think they just made Ashley's a little bit tougher. Uh, and, you know, the, every candidate wants to be seen as authentic. I mean, I think we saw in the 2014 U.S. Senate race, Joni Ernst sort of capitalized on on her authenticness. She was a, a mother, a soldier, a Harley rider. She was going to make him squeal, farm girl. And, Bra- and Bruce Braley sort of didn't seem as authentic. He seemed, you know, he, he talks badly about Chuck Grassley and Houston on secret camera and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, this, you, you don't want to be, you don't want to appear to be a candidate whose, whose issue stands are basically, you know, cookie cutter issue stands, you know, packaged by a Virginia consulting firm. And I think that this is one of those situations where, you know, that it raises those questions. It's like how, how much of this campaign is Ashley Henson and how much of it is, all of the, you know, just sort of the, the prepackaged consultant driven uh, uh, focus grouped stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're, they're, so it's those two things. I think she's done okay on the response. I mean, you know, it's, it's never a great look to blame somebody else for a mistake, but that's, you know, I guess that's what, what, the, what she's going to do. At least she hasn't at this point in any meaningful way tried to make this into some sort of partisan victimization situation sort of like rod blum did with the 10 moon uh yeah. issue he kind of he kind of tepidly said he might have done something wrong but then blamed everybody else for the problem and i haven't seen henson do that as of yet and i, I think it would be a mistake for her to sort of try to blame partisanship for uh plagiarism but uh, is it going to have a huge impact I, I don't think it like like uh, amy said i don't think it changes any of her supporters minds but I suppose it doesn't make a good impression on those who may be just tuning in and haven't really given much thought to, to Ashley Henson's candidacy. Well, let's move across uh, the state from the first district to the fourth district and talk about the race there. Um, like Iowa political junkies aren't lacking for uh, material to feed their addictions this year with the presidential race, the U.S. Senate race, and four competitive house races. Um, Brett, we've talked a a lot about this race in the past just because it's so interesting. And now that we know the players, uh, Democrat J.D. Scholten and Republican State Senator Randy Feenstra, how is this race shaping up? What's it it looking like? Well, the the one thing to remember um, is that the Iowa 4th is by far the you know, the most Republican of the four congressional districts. So, and again, it's, uh, remains that way with, I think it's 60, 65, 70,000 voter advantage for Republicans. But, but what's, what's, um, I guess at play is that once Feenstra won, 
the primary <clears throat> a month ago. Um, he doesn't have the baggage that Steve King has. So, um, and Steve King only won by 3% because of, um, I guess that baggage um, in 2018 to, to Shulton. And uh, once that primary um, outcome was, was known within a, within a day, the political prognosticators across you know, the nation put it as, as a strong, solid Republican seat. So um, that really changed the dynamic from, you know, Shulton had a, had, um, Shulton just flat out had a had a easy had a stronger chance to defeat Steve King than he probably does with with Randy Feenstra. Is he still getting the same kind of love from Democrats around the country as he did two years ago? I mean, is, is his fundraising holding up? Yeah, that um, that uh, his personal fundraising um, is definitely holding up. Um, he had uh, over the last quarter. Um, 600,000 that J.D. Shulton brought in, um, which compared to 400,000 for the quarter for Randy Feenstra. And and of that 600,000 that Shulton brought in, just in the last month alone, the month of June, um, he brought in 350,000 of, of that 600,000. So um, that shows that he's, he's still going strong there. Um, what remains to be seen is like, what, what, what will like the outside packs do um, once because this election, you know, may not have shifted because he's no longer going up against Steve King. And I, and I saw uh, shortly after those fundraising reports came out, someone had commented that um, um, uh, seeing that Feinster was still drawing really well. Um, do these Democrats who are, you know, or progressive or, you know, Democrat affiliated people that are obviously donating to Randy Fien- uh, to J.D. Shulton, do they realize that he's no longer running against Steve King? Because, you know, the fact their desire to beat King led to a lot of money going to Shulton, you know, either him directly or, or these outside packs. Now that it's not King, will that dry up? And that's going to be an interesting thing to see, um, uh, you know, in these five months or so till the election. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. It'll be interesting. The next fundraising reports to see what those, those groups are doing right. and whether right. they're, they're coming in and running ads and doing all those things that they helped with in the past. Um, Amy, what does this race look like on, on the Eastern end of the district? Uh, Is Shulton active and, and is his base from still there from 2018? You know, I, we don't ever really hear too much from, from Shulton. Um, Occasionally King will, you know, come to the, the far Eastern side of his district, which, um, you know, are obviously some counties that we cover. Um, but no, I really don't ever see Shulton. I think if anything, he thinks maybe those Eastern counties are his blue wall, you know, and, and, and they're pretty solid and, and he might not need to, you know, shore those up as much as he needs to, to really hit the heart of the fourth. Um, so perhaps that's also what's going on. It could also be, um, COVID related. Um, a lot more people are having, you know, virtual events instead, or just not showing up as much, um, these days, but no, we really haven't seen Shulton over here. And Brett, um, James, um, go ahead. I, I did yeah. want to. I did want to say what some things that are different about about this election. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, one one thing of note, uh, and again, I, we talked about how or Steve King had some you know has baggage uh, over the last few years. How that has increased with his his statements on race, and and a lot of Republicans just were you know they had, didn't vote for him in in large number in as large numbers in twenty eighteen. And it was, you know, probably tracking that way again this time. But 
um, the minute that Feenstra won that primary that very night when I, I was waiting to talk to him on, uh, <laughs> on the evening, like around 11 p.m. to finish the story, um, and he graciously, thank you, if uh, any Feenstra team is listening to this, uh, gave us at the Journal the first call that night. But uh, as I was waiting, he got had a fo- phone call from the House uh, leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy. So that shows immediately that you know the leadership of the House was willing to move on from Steve King and embrace um, the winning candidate, you know, in the moment that night. And um, in October of 2018, um, in the final weeks before the election, the the National um, Republican organization, the House affiliated organization, Steve Stivers um, and and that group, they stopped donating money to to Steve King. So that happened, you know, right right in the run up to, to that election. So that that type of thing is not is certainly not going to be a factor in in this race. Um, another thing that's dif- different is Cholton at this point was still a relative unknown. He had just come out of the primary. Um, he's had two years of campaigning. People, you know, Democrats like him. He's a very you know, he he really works the grassroots really hard. So he's got name recognition that he doesn't that he didn't have at this point. Um, you know, he's a much more tested candidate, obviously. He's already running ads. So, uh, like he came out of that primary and immediately started running ads. And he has, you know, he he didn't get money in 2018 until the very end. It was, was that surge that came in like September, October, um, the last two months. He's had he's well funded, so he's much more well funded. So, but again, what what is the same? I guess is that there's still um, it's still a highly Republican area uh, district and. What remains is um, to be seen as can can Shulton pull in a whole bunch of independents and somehow win this, and that you know that would be hard to imagine, but obviously that's that, you know that's what he's hoping for or counting on. Interesting. By the way, what's uh, Steve King up to these days? Yeah. Um, well, I have we have, we at the Journal have a weekend article that I've written that will run, um, kind of catching up. To, to what Congressman King is doing. And one thing that's been doing it, you know, the, the tale of the last two months has been a lot of the, the protests nationally about uh, what's happening with police and, and the Black Lives Movement. And Steve King, probably somewhat unsurprisingly, um, is not a fan of the Black Lives Movement. And uh, via a lot of, a lot of, we looked through his Twitter account the last several weeks and um, he's not a fan of Black Lives Movement. Um, he retweeted someone's, a uh, tweet that called them a terrorist organization. Um, and uh, moreover, there's a lot of talk, obviously, about the removing of the Confederate uh, symbols, uh, monuments, the Confederate flag. Steve King is not a proponent of that whatsoever. So he's, um, you know, and these are things that that people, you know, that's very consistent for Steve King. He, a lot of people will remember he had a Confederate flag on his desk around 2016. Right. For, for some time before he took that down. So, you know, this is nothing new, but um, if there's any thought that Steve King would change or soften or, you know, who he is or his stances after a primary loss for his last six months in office, that's that's not happening. Given, given his uh, lengthy service to the state and to the 4th District, uh, are there plans to build a monument to Steve King? Huh. <laughs> I had not thought of that. Um, hmm. All right, we say... <laughs> 
We say, re- I hate how, how often I say remains to be seen on these podcasts, but, <laughs> um, but it remains to be seen. <laughs> the, journal, the journal should do something to elicit responses. You know, what should that be? Maybe, maybe we'll get on that and see it. There you go. Yeah, at least, at least get the ball rolling. Well, when you get an answer to that, we'll talk about it on a future edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope today was worth your time. If you liked it, tell a friend, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. Send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. And you can find us on the homepages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Jeremy Jacobs will take us out. And if you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Brett, Amy, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well.